Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. What's really important is to be able to hone that talent and make it productive for your company. Imagine you're in the middle of a successful, thriving career. You're well-respected, teaching at places like Columbia University and the Parsons School of Design. You've dedicated your career to gaining the experience, the know-how, and the prestige that comes with talent and dedication. Oh, and did I mention that your parents are former immigrants from Korea who came to America without anything and instilled a strong sense of ambition into you, their daughter? And you are that daughter who has met and exceeded that challenge. Then something happens. Like Jerry Zaks, our guest on the last episode, discovering the theater, went on a path to medical career. This time, not nearly so pleasant a discovery. It's 2010, an earthquake in Haiti. Mass devastation, 200,000 people dead, and those left on the ground scrounging to survive without much of anything, and in the dark, darkness everywhere. And that's when the literal spark goes off for you. What if we could invent something that can provide light to Haitians when there's no electricity grid, there's no money, there's no anything? Our guest on the SIDCast this week, Alice Chun, found just that solution, a remarkably elegant solution, drawing on her background design and origami, and drawing on her values handed down from her Korean parents as well. And that's how so light design was started a collapsible cube powered by solar energy that opens up to create a light with eight hours of life in it rechargeable every day by the sun the journey that brought alice chun to this point and what happened and continues to happen to alice and her company is the subject of this week's sitcast welcome to the sitcast this is sit finkelstein and i'm here today with alice chun hi alice Hello, Sid. Lovely to be here. Thank you for being here. We're in the Luminary Workspace um, in the city, in New York City. That's right. And we're in a conference room that has other conference rooms nearby with all kinds of people creating wonderful things. So we'll hear a little bit of background sound, but we'll try not to eavesdrop on any confidential conversations <laughs> next door. So, you know, when I was walking over today, Alice, I listened to your TED Talk. And the first thing that jumps out to me that I didn't know is kerosene. Yes. And that it's a terrible thing. Now, I know that I thought it was a great thing, but boy, is it a terrible thing. Could you say a little bit more about that? Absolutely. When I was teaching at Columbia University, I was focusing on solar energy. And when the Haiti earthquake happened, I quickly turned my studio around to be an innovation studio to help Haiti. And when we started to do the research into what was happening in Haiti, we discovered that only 5% of the country was electrified, and most people living in Haiti were using kerosene. But the real stickler was that they were spending 30% of their income on kerosene so to light so their world we, at night. Just so we can understand. So kerosene, that was a, that's how they created light? Yes. It was a lamp that used kerosene oil. Basically a kerosene lamp. And when I went to Nigeria and went to Makoko, which is this floating slum, there were people that used a can, filled it up with kerosene, and put a rope in there and then lit that rope. And that was their lighting that at night. That didn't sound particularly safe either. No, it's very dangerous. And there's 30,000 house fires every year in India alone. Wow. Wow. 
So what was the impetus for creating uh, what became the Solar Puff, I guess, is the first name you have? First of all, my focus on solar energy was basically because of the birth of my son, because he was born with asthma, and there's nothing... I don't know. Do you have kids? I have a um, 28-year-old daughter. Luckily, they didn't grow up with asthma, but my son grew up with asthma, and basically these kids... A lot of kids are growing up with asthma. I used to go to the doctor's office all the time and almost every week with an attack of some sort, of breathing attack, and realized that there were so many kids in the doctor's room, not just my son. And so I did research. You know, there's a saying, a worried mom does better research than the FBI. So that's what I did. I researched and it turned out that in all urban areas, there's a spike in extreme allergies and asthma in children. And that's when I decided to focus on solar energy because of my son. So he was dealing with asthma and you realize this is, of course, terrible for him. How is he today? He's great. He actually still has extreme allergies and eczema, but he no longer has to have the nebulizer, which is a, a pump that pumps. When you get a shortness of breath, is that what Yes, that yeah. yeah. And he doesn't need to be shot with steroid injections anymore. Wow. Well, that must not have been pleasant and easy for either of you. It's actually one of the most heart-wrenching experiences mm -hmm. To see your own child's lips turning blue mm. is an incredibly mind-blowing experience. And you do, if you love someone so much, if there's someone in your life that you love more than life itself, you would do anything for them. Yeah, absolutely. How old is he now? Right now he's 15 and going to high school. Yeah. And a typical teenage boy. So that was obviously such a gigantic driver of your, your motivation, your, your interest. But what were you doing at that time when you started the company? You were teaching at Columbia or you were at Parsons? Or? Actually, I was at both. I was a working mom. I had a small child. I was breastfeeding and I had three jobs and also going through a divorce oh when I started Solite. You didn't have enough to do that you decided to start a company. If I knew what I would have to go through back then, I probably would not have done it. Isn't that interesting? You know, there are a lot of things in life, I think, like, like that. You just do it. You put your head down and you do it. But when you look back and you realize how incredibly challenging, you may not have wanted to do it. Maybe it's best that we don't know quite as much. Well, some of my friends that are entrepreneurs... Mm -hmm have this saying that, you know, I was lucky that I was stupid <laughs> because if I knew everything that would have happened, it, it I would have deterred me. But honestly, I, I'm not teaching anymore. I'm not a professor anymore. I'm doing this full time because I felt like I didn't have a choice. Yeah. If I wanted to make a difference for my son and his children and your children's children, I would have to do this. And the only reason why I didn't give up all of those kind of challenging and very difficult times is because I would think about my son and I wouldn't give up because right. of him. Yeah. 
So did you actually go to Haiti during some of that time in the recovery? Oh, yeah. I, I've been to Haiti maybe 20 times. 20 times. When was the first time then? The first time was in 2010, right after the Haiti earthquake. It was a few months afterwards. I was very, very fortunate because I had contacted the Clinton Foundation and UN Habitat, and I just kept calling them and calling them and calling them. And finally, someone from the Clinton Foundation showed up to my final review at Columbia University because I created this studio about solutions to help Haiti. And as you know, President Clinton was the UN envoy at that time. Mm. So since 2010, I've created this relationship with the Clinton Foundation, and they invited me there for a Green Tech Expo. Oh, I see. And how long after the, that, the earthquake was that? That was eight months after the earthquake So happened. you probably still saw lots of devastation. Oh, yeah. Definite devastation. Could incredible, you, incredible devastation. Could you describe a little bit of what you saw those well, first days? One of the things that I remember, were, there was this man, he was naked and he was screaming and he was basically mad walking the streets because his whole family died in the rubble and he heard them die mm. and he was just mad walking the streets there were buildings that were completely crumbled in half mm -hmm. there were areas where half the buildings were moved a block over and the rubble and the dust was incredible yeah did you have to wear a mask yourself and everyone else because of the dust everywhere there were a lot of people wearing masks but i didn't there were a lot of rain showers and and that helped and that helped and so when you got there what was your mission that first time well honestly we just wanted to go and help but apparently we couldn't go right away because Everyone was saying that if you go right away and you're not a medic and you're not there mm. just for medical purposes, yep. you're going to be in the way. Yep. And so we waited a few months and we went in August. And then it was still incredibly, the devastation was horrific. But what I found really inspiring is that the Haitian people were energetic, hopeful, mm ambitious and incredibly industrious really even after that type of devastation i fell in love with the haitian culture they're warm friendly kind generous and in particular extremely ambitious and it reminded me of being living in Korea as a baby, growing up in a war-torn Seoul right after um, the United States had left. There was no economy, there were no jobs. A lot of people, like my parents, immigrated to the United States and set up bodegas and... This was um, the 1950s. Actually, in the 1960s, the 1960s. 1960s. So anyway, Korea... Once they opened their doors to importing and exporting and rewrote their constitution, they doubled the capita per head. They didn't have any gold or minerals or oil. Mm -hmm. All they had was a lot of really hardworking people. And that's what I saw in Haiti. Right. And that must have been inspiring to see that. It was. It yeah. was. It gave me hope for Haiti. 
right? And did you have a chance to talk to you know, everyday people when you were there? You must have. Oh, course. absolutely. Yeah, what did they say? What did they say to you in particular for, you know, you were there, you were trying to help. There were other people there and they were dealing with this devastation. Everywhere I went, if there was an orphanage that I went to, all the children would just cling to my legs and touch my hair and touch every part of my arm. And wherever I went, always the children were smiling and happy and created the most incredible toys out of garbage. Water bottle and the caps would be the wheels. A little boy I saw created his own kite from a beautiful kite out of a garbage bag and two twigs. And I thought it was incredibly inspiring to see that kind of ingenuity right right especially for you you're such a you're a design person but right. you created with the solar puffin design but way before that as well right right yeah now the company itself was started just after that haiti trip is that the right time frame yes at first i created a non-profit mm-hmm. and it was very difficult to raise funds to get the solar puff manufactured. So I had to create a for-profit company to get it manufactured. That's actually very interesting. I know I talked about that issue with my students, my MBA students sometimes, that you have a non-profit goal of some type, but the profit motive enables you to raise the, can enable you to raise the resources you need to actually accomplish those goals. Absolutely. And so we consider ourselves more of a for-purpose company as opposed to a for-profit company because Mm -hmm. we do have a triple bottom line. You have a triple bottom line and is it actually a B Corp or that's... We're actually a C Corp. It's paperwork. I know it's a lot to do. Um, But in terms of investment, all of the investment uh, advice that I've gotten is that it really, it doesn't matter, that it's really a branding thing to label yourself a B Corp, but investors will preferably invest in a C Corp in Delaware, which is what we are. Yeah. So just to give listeners a picture of the size of the company and where you're at, and then we're going to work our way back to how you got there, but just kind of where we're at today in the end of 2019. So how big is, is the company? And uh... Well, we're in about 20 different countries worldwide. We were in about 700 doors across the United States. And with our social mission last year, especially with help from our NGO partners such as Hispanic Federation and Operation Blessing, we've been able to impact over almost a million lives worldwide, from Syrian refugees in Greece to Haiti earthquake victims, earthquake victims after the Nepal earthquake, And of course, after Hurricane Maria, we were able to get over 150,000 lights to Puerto Rico. And right now we're actually helping in Bahamas. In the Bahamas. So how do you actually do this? It doesn't cost nothing to make these things. Those are big numbers. We donate some of the lights and we also partner with nonprofit organizations who buy the lights from us. Yes and with their volunteers. And I've actually gone myself and delivered lights Mm -hmm. to Dominica after Hurricane Maria. I've gone to Puerto Rico a few times to deliver lights on my own, along with other volunteers with other organizations. In fact, I just went last Christmas, this past Christmas, 2018, 
to Puerto Rico, and there are still homes without power and electricity. Wow, that's from the hurricane. From the hurricane, yeah, people are still recovering. Amazing. So back to, I'm, I'm interested in what's going on with the company today, but also when you've gone to these places. So you were there in Puerto Rico a couple of times and other places as well. What are you seeing there? And how does that compare to what you saw a few years earlier in Haiti? The political situation makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. They have a much more democratic and they're a less corrupt political. Uh, who does? Who are you uh, speaking? Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico does, yeah. Haiti, it's difficult to maneuver because they've had a history of corruption mm -hmm. and it's been extremely difficult to maneuver away from certain ways of being there that I can't start to talk about it because we'll be here forever. But, <laughs> but Puerto Rico was very easy in terms of being able to bring in inventory for disaster relief. In Haiti, there was a lot of issues of cargo being held up at customs and not being released because people were expecting handouts and uh, bribery. Even after that type of devastation? Oh, yeah. And these people are also, they're also Haitians. Yeah. They figured that Anyone outside from the United States, they could afford to pay. They could afford that to pay them bribes. Right. Yeah. I mean, topic is not corruption, but corruption is something that happens, of course, in many countries. And America is not immune, although nothing like what I think you're describing in Haiti and some other countries. But it's such a gigantic tax on development, on improvement, on everyday life. It's, it's really, uh, I don't know how to eradicate it, actually. I've talked to a lot of people who do business in a lot of places, and, of course, it's against the law for any American company to engage in, in bribery and other Absolutely. things like that. As well it should. On the other hand, business is done that way in a lot of places. Yeah, especially where there's extreme poverty, because people are so desperate, mm -hmm. they don't have mm -hmm. anything. That's the only way they're going to be able to perhaps feed their family. Yeah. Yeah, so they're looking at it as survival. Yeah, it's a part of livelihood to get right. bribes like that. Which it's got to make it a big challenge for the NGOs that you partner with, the United Nations Absolutely, absolutely. But um, there's some organizations that are more effective than others mm -hmm. because of the way they are organized and bring in volunteers on the ground to work with people on the ground. Mm -hmm. And so we've been very fortunate to work with NGOs such as Operation Blessings and Hispanic Federation mm -hmm. who were partnered with. We're also partnered with the Clinton Foundation who have been able to connect us with right. very good NGOs. So incredible challenge, not just creating a company, which is always an incredible challenge, but getting it out to where it's needed. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the business, and I'm looking at the table in front of us, and there are, there's a Merlin Helix, there's a Solar Helix, and there's something that looks like the Sydney Opera House almost. Oh, thank you. Uh, is that what it was meant Probably. to be? <laughs> well, I used to be an architect, so that's a great compliment. Yeah, thank you. It has a bit of a look like that, and we'll put photos up on the website with the show notes so everybody will be able to see that. How does this technology work in the first place? Well, there is a 
small solar panel, which is called photovoltaics. Photovoltaics is the material of the solar panel. And when the sunlight hits that, it creates an electric charge within that material. And that electricity can be harnessed with a battery. And there are LEDs on the other side of the solar panel, which light up an area that is expandable. And the expandable part is I'll call it a bladder, and the bladder is actually the diffuser for the light. When you stare in directly into an LED, it's kind of like staring into the sun, and it's bad for your eyes. Mm -hmm. It can cause cataracts. Mm -hmm. So you need a diffuser for that light, and the ambient light and the way that it diffuses will give you a much healthier light for that room and the environment. So all of our products are origami-based design. They flat pack like an origami toy almost, and they expand, pop open, without the need to inflate with your mouth. The design itself allows for the products to self-inflate. Our most recent product is called the Quinn, which is a very large origami crown-like dome. And I named it after my son, Quinn, because he's the light of my life. But this product has a much larger area to collect solar energy. There are about four times the size of solar panel than our original solar puff design. So if you ever buy a solar charger, and the solar panel is about the size of your iPhone or your telephone, that will take two weeks for that battery to charge because the solar panel is not big enough mm. to charge that battery in a decent amount of time. And so I designed this, the Quinlight, to have two large solar panels. They're about four times the size of those other ones. So you can actually charge the battery in a day. In a day. And so, in fact, somebody could be using this for, I don't know, for going on a hike or somewhere, or even sleep. Absolutely. Yes. Right? And, and it'll charge during the day. And then the smaller lights would go for about 10 hours or eight Depending hours. on the setting. If you put it on low setting, it'll last 10 hours. If you put it on high setting, it'll last six to eight hours. Now, how did you come up with this design, especially the uh, origami type, which is very original to look at? I grew up doing origami. My parents were very artistic. My mom was an artist and my father was an architect. And my mom taught me how to sew my own clothes and do origami. Grew up doing cranes and paper balloons. And the solar puff is actually based on the origami paper balloon. So you were with your students when you were teaching Columbia and created this kind of lab to design yes. something. So you had this kind of this history in you as a uh, motivation, and then you just kind of tinkered with it until something came together. Is that how it works? Yeah. Well, first of all, when the Haiti earthquake happened, I was going to include all of my solar research into the studio. But then when the Haiti earthquake happened, I realized there would be a purpose. And that purpose would be to solve problems. And it turned out that those problems were world problems, not just problems in Haiti. The issue of having to live without a grid is something that 2.6 billion people live with every day. 2.6 billion. 
Yes, and that's a low. That's a low estimate because you have many areas where the grid is available, but it's extremely unreliable. Constant power outages and brownouts all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes me think about uh, what's going on in California with the power outages, planned power outages. I would imagine that something like your product, the Solite, could Absolutely. be quite attractive. Yes. Did it pick up? uh, It did. It It did. Yeah. It just seems like, uh, especially in California, being so, generally speaking, aware of the environment and caring about the environment. Absolutely. We get a lot of customers from California. We love you, California. (laughs) So you designed the product that was based on, well, you had students helping you, but did they, what were they doing exactly in all this? Well, I was actually in studio guiding them and basically instructing them. Um, many of the students had different types of projects and it was my idea to give them the problem of creating an individualized infrastructure, designing a detail of their project for one person and at the scale of a neighborhood and then at the scale of an urban setting. So with giving them this problem of designing a small solar light for an individual that could flat pack, and that was the impetus for the solar puff. Originally, it was an inflatable with a mouth nozzle, but mouth nozzles are terrible because sanitation is such an issue when there's a disaster, especially in Haiti with cholera and Ebola and now Zika. You don't want the risk of any kind of disease spreading with mouth inhalation. So I designed it to inflate on its own. So you don't have to use your mouth. You can just pull it open and it sucks in air on its own and Mm -hmm. pushes air out on its own when you deflate it. Now, the company you've built to this point has how many people working full-time or part-time? Probably about 10 to 12. Yeah. And uh, at the break, you were saying that most or maybe all of them are women. Is that right? Yes. We have many women that are working in our company. Well, we have lawyers and we have accountants, but even our accountant is female. And our operations director is a woman that I hired from Save the Children in Puerto Rico. I met her when I was on one of the trips. So what did you say to her to get her to give up something that she was no doubt passionate about and probably really good at because you hired her? What did you tell her? The woman that I hired for operations? Well, I just showed her my product and I told her why I created it, which was to help people in need and to eliminate the kerosene problem worldwide. But in the United States, people love these lights for camping and outdoors and gardens. And she actually ordered our lights for the kids in the camps in Puerto Rico. And so I had gone to visit her to see how the lights were faring with the kids. Sometimes I like to teach the kids about solar energy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just got into a conversation with her about what she did mm-hmm. at Save the Children. And they were actually closing down operations in Puerto Rico. And they had mentioned that they wanted her to go to Syria as the next uh, stop. She and she did not want to do that. 
But um, so I, there you were showing up with this kind of cool thing and that had similar yeah, values to and what I, she did. I actually told her that I needed someone with her skills. Nice, nice. And then I met, she said she was moving to New York. And then I said, well, when you're up, we should meet. And I interviewed her when she came up to New York and she went, she met one of our investors and board members and she did great. And she's fantastic. Amazing woman. Yeah, great, great story. I'm always interested where you find, where anyone can find great talent. Talent. And it's talent very is everywhere. Difficult. Talent is everywhere and requires people to be, I think, entrepreneurial in looking for talent. And you met her, you saw her, you talked to her, you saw someone with potential, and you built a relationship that led to an, uh, an important job. I find companies, especially entrepreneurial companies, have to be thinking about talent acquisition. Absolutely. It is very difficult to find good talent. I've gone through a lot of people that have not delivered on what they said they would deliver. And so what's really important is to be able to hone that talent and make it productive for your company. So I would say there's, I don't know, you said that there was a lot of talent everywhere, but I would venture to say I'm not sure about that. Well, I think when you take a really broad lens, a wide lens. There are people everywhere. I've talked to people that have found talent all over, in a restaurant, that you're a server. They're in a different industry than probably 99.99% of the people they're serving. But if they're really good, what do they have? Relationship skills, interpersonal yeah. skills, customer relationship skills. Those are highly transferable across different types of careers. The problem occurs when and this is not just or even at all an entrepreneurial thing, it's for anyone in, in business. The problem occurs when you follow the usual ways, the traditional ways of finding talent. You think that's how it works. Yeah. Um, but you can't give up whatever that is. But I think the differentiator is when everywhere you go, everyone you talk to, your antenna is up in the same way that an entrepreneur is thinking, how can I make my idea better? Uh, well, how can I find somebody better? How can I find somebody new? How can I extend and expand? And it's so critical because of what you said, which is, you know, it's hard. You got to find people. Well, you got to be creative about doing that. The quote that I remember is that an entrepreneur can be thrown out of a plane and learn how to make a parachute on the way down. <laughs> so the whole idea of resourcefulness and being able to creatively work your way through a problem is a talent that I think is so valuable. And that's what I look for a lot when I meet people. And so would you say you have that skill? To work well? through problems uh, on the, the go? Flying out of the plane, creating that parachute, that metaphor is a, is, is a, is a great one because people can hear it and they can visualize it and say, would I be able to do that, metaphorically speaking? Yeah, you're kind of frightened. You're, there's an element of fear, but then one way or another, you try one thing and then another until it works. A process of elimination, but also tenacity and grit. Yeah. When it comes to personal survival, people will do whatever they possibly can. And so maybe there's something about how an entrepreneur thinks about her business, that it's about survival. And it's that critical, and I'll do whatever it takes to make this work. It's absolutely the case, but I also think of it as a double-edged sword because this is something that I think about often is that line between survival and thriving that 
Many times decisions are made because you want to survive versus thrive. And if you are able to hold off on certain decisions and not jump and be patient, sometimes the reward is much greater than the immediate satisfaction of making a decision quickly. So that's one of the things that I'm learning a lot about in terms of being able to project and plan and strategize mm -hmm. how to win in a battle. And battles are with maneuvering investment to maneuvering a patent dispute, things like that, yeah. as well as maneuvering a way to get more conversions. These are all things that need planning and execution, and execution is really extremely critical to the success of a company. Yeah, so surviving versus thriving. Can you share an example where you've gone down the path of, well, either one, because you're learning, as you just told us, you know, on the job like everyone is, but where you were, you maybe made that decision that you felt was needed for surviving that may have made it more difficult to think about long-term, or maybe today as you're thinking even more about the long-term success and longevity of an organization and, and a business where you made that choice? Well, there's also this existential crisis that you go through as well as an entrepreneur. And what I mean by that is you have to trust in your intuition, the trust in your gut mm -hmm. versus what everyone's telling you from different professions. They're telling you their opinion of what they think you should do. Yeah. And a lot of times... Sometimes your gut will tell you no. But they're the shouldn't. experts, I thought. Right, exactly. They're the experts. And so in the beginning, I basically trusted the so-called experts because I felt I didn't know anything. I'm just a teacher. I'm you a professor. Business before. Um, I'm doing this because this is a calling and I need to do this. And I don't really have a choice. I have to do this. No. So I listened to those experts, like you said, and they were wrong. They were wrong. They were wrong because um, like one of them told me that it was a lawyer, actually. One of my early lawyers told me I was not suited to be a CEO and that I would fail, that I would never get this product out to market. And this is someone that was on your team that you had hired? The VF, the he, was actually, for you. he was actually our, he was working pro bono. He was a lawyer for a very, very big, big law firm in New York. And the advice that he gave me was absolutely wrong. He wanted me to hire this other person as a CEO, and he turned out to be a complete disaster. Mm -hmm. And then just being able to trust your intuition is quite a revelation mm -hmm. within the context of becoming a successful entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting point because what is intuition and where does it come from? Experience, life, maybe something else, but your experiences you just described, you've been a professor, you're a designer, you're a creative person, and you're certainly an entrepreneur because of what you've created, what you've done, but you didn't run a company before. So where's the intuition come from, do you think? I have to affiliate it with imagination. Einstein says that your imagination is more intelligent than your intellect, and I believe him. He said that your intellect is really your imagination at play. And I think that imagination is inextricably linked 
to intuition. So my philosophy, which is from an Eastern philosophy, believes that when you are born at the moment of conception, you are in a state of omnipotency, of all-knowing, and that for the rest of your life, every act of learning is an act of remembering mm -hmm. everything that you've forgotten. So inherently, we have this inside us already, and it's just a matter of unleashing it to the world. And it's a matter of finding that window, that right window and opportunity to unleash your talent. Is that one of the things that led you to create this business in the first place? That that was working its way, whether it was articulated it, or not at the time? It was not articulated, but in hindsight... You, you know it was there. It was always in hindsight yeah. that all of those meetings, that coincidental drop-in, that hug to another person in grief, that led to... And basically, it was just acting on your intuition and what you felt was right, that you're doing the right thing. And eventually that comes back to you tenfold. Mm, that's so uh, interesting. And what about learning when that intuition leads you in a way that might not be working? Because of course, nothing is perfect. Even when it leads you the wrong way, I have to have faith in the universe that it's actually a roundabout way to get to the truth, to eventually find the right way. I think it was Nelson Mandela. It doesn't matter if I'm wrong or right. I learn either way. Mm. So I win either way. And I think that goes back to the wrong way, supposed wrong way. I get worried when parents try to make their children decide what they should do for the rest of their lives when they're very young, before they go off to college. Mm. I'm an example of someone that changed careers in the middle of her life. And now I'm very passionate about what we're doing and I believe in what our company is about, which is that small things matter and can make a huge impact on the world, that everyone has the power to create change and collectively we can change the world together. The last thing you talked about is parenting. And I was really struck by what you said, which is, you know, it, we shouldn't as parents push or guide or tell our kid or kids when they're young people what direction of life they should follow. And I'll say that I'm always struck when I see that. I don't think it's common, but it does happen. Mm -hmm. and I'm really, I'm kind of amazed it's actually the right word because I never could have done that even if I wanted to for my own daughter. She was going to go her own path and... That's, and that was it. And that, that's right. And that's great. When you raise a child to be independent, yes. to be able to live and thrive without us as much yes. as we love them. Yeah. That's kind of our job. It's phenomenal. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you very much. So tell us a little bit more about kind of your, your parenting philosophy in this regard. I'm the same way. I tell my son that the greatest gift that you could give me is to be happy in whatever you choose to do for the rest of your life that that is the most important thing for him, that he loves what he does. That's the most important thing, and that everything else will come mm. once that happens. And I think he believes that. Yeah. I think he's figuring it out on his own. He's only 15, but... Um, but he was born with omnipotent knowledge of some type. Yeah, he's remembering. So there you go. But what you just said really resonates with me because you know, my mom is long 
gone now, but she, I did not live in the same city as her for a long time because I moved off and did whatever I did. Mm. Uh, but almost every time when we talk on the phone, she'd ask me, Sydney, are you happy? Mm. That was the single most important thing she wanted to know. Mm. And it's just what you just said. Isn't That's it? fantastic. Yeah. I like your mom. I love my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I think about my mother uh, every day, actually. So you mentioned briefly before your own parents, architect, yes. artist. So what was it like growing up in your household? Do you have any siblings, first of all? I have one brother who's five years younger than I am, and he lives in San Jose. And when I was 15, well, first of all, I came over to the United States from Seoul when I was four and grew up in upstate New York until I was 15. My brother was 10, and my parents decided to move back to Korea oh. because martial law had ended and President Park was assassinated and Korea was going through a tremendous transformation economically, politically. And so we moved back, and I moved from a first-world country to a third-world country, and it was extremely difficult. And my brother stayed in Korea, and I came back for college. I went to Penn State undergrad, and then for graduate school, my master's was at University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And then afterwards, I started to teach almost immediately at University of Pennsylvania. But my mom and dad, growing up, were extremely creative. My mom was always making my own clothes and taught me how to make my own clothes. They were both making furniture. They were both painters. Um, my mom had an exhibit at the Everson Museum in Syracuse when I was very young, and we were constantly making things. Mm -hmm. I remember painting next to my mom as she was creating her exhibition for the Everson Museum. And so that instilled a great deal of imagination. I also grew up in a very poor neighborhood outside of Syracuse where I was one of the only, I was the only Asian mm. in predominantly African American and, and white community. So I was beat up a lot and teased. And I told the kids when I first went to Dominica to give them lights so that they could do their homework at night. I told them, you know, I grew up really poor and because I was beat up when I was a kid, I became a fighter, but I didn't fight with my fists. I fought with the light of my imagination and the light of my heart. And now that you have this solar puff, you guys are now light warriors. And light warriors fight with that light. And that the sun is the most amazing source of energy that comes to the earth every day. It gives us 970 trillion kilowatt hours of energy a day. That's enough light to give everyone on the planet, that's 700 billion people, enough light mm. to last their whole lifetime. Were you also an artist? Of course, you are an artist as a designer, but an artist as in a painter or something like that. I did. I was, I actually started off as an art major and then switched to architecture when I was in college. Did you actually practice as an architect? 
I did. We were doing FBI office renovations. FBI office renovations. That's not the first thing I would have thought of. DEA office renovations, hospital renovations. In the firm you were working for. In the firm that I was working for. We did a lot of government projects, schools. Do you think various artistic skills are bundled together? So there's architecture, there's product design, there's drawing. It could be even creative writing of, of different types. They think they bundle together. Absolutely. I also think that music is very mathematical. Yes. yes. Music is incredibly creative, but also there is a discipline and then there is a logic to it that is also very helpful with architecture. Yeah, I've noticed that. I think we're not the only ones to say that. I've noticed it kind of personally with friends of mine, actually a bunch of them are doctors or now some retired doctors that they all, not all, but many of them play music and yeah. there's a connection there somehow. Yeah, I have a couple of, I have a very dear friend who is in finance and he's an incredible math wizard, but he's also a great lover of music and jazz. So I think the two are inextricably linked. Right, right, right. And so your parents... Well, I didn't answer. Are your parents still with us? Yes, they Thankfully. are. They're what do Korea. they say about this business of yours? They're very proud. Yes. But, they're... but then you switched careers <laughs> totally. Yeah, at first my mom was like, Oh, Arisa, don't do change. You have a good job. Don't change. <laughs> so then um, I said, Mom, you know, this is very important. This is not about prestige. Because I guess in Asia, being a teacher is one of the highest levels of mm-hmm. accomplishment. Being a professor, it's mm-hmm. very up there in, in respect. So yeah. when I said that I was leaving, I wasn't going to be doing that anymore. That was a problem. That was a problem. But they understood. They understand, yeah. They yeah. understand, yeah. It's kind of what we were saying before about how careers are kind of organic and you go from one thing to the other and it's not a straight pathway. Absolutely. Um, I have a nice anecdote about that. Yes. The Greeks believed that there were two versions of time. The first version, his name was Kyaros, and the other was Kronos. And Kyaros, well, Kronos, you know, he's an old figure, elderly, very consistent, predictable. And Kyaros has wings on his feet and he flits and he flies about and unpredictable, mm-hmm. unsequential. And when those two lines of time intersect, mm-hmm. those moments of intersection is when invention and innovation happens. And it's great. opportunity. That is a great thought, great way to think. Because I could visualize those two you know, gods floating through the air. And in a way, there's logic extreme logic and rationality and a total flight of fancy. You met Hillary Clinton. In fact, you were profiled in a book not that long ago that came out, I think. Yeah, it just came out. The Book of Gutsy Women by Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. Right. So what was that project and how did it turn out that uh, you ended up meeting them as part of this? Well, because we're partnered with the Clinton Foundation and we were able to make a commitment to the Clinton Foundation to deliver 50,000 lights. We were able to get 150,000 lights to Puerto Rico. So we over-delivered on our commitment and was able to meet Hillary backstage at one of the meetings that they had 
And the first thing I said to her was, Hillary, my son voted for you that day, and he came home crying mm -hmm. when they found out you didn't win. He was crying, and, I, and she said, she, you know, we were all crying. And I was just in such admiration, and I had told her the story of Light Warriors, of my trip to Dominica delivering solar lights. Mm -hmm. And she just said, Alice, I love that story. I want to be a light warrior. And then she said, you know, Chelsea and I are doing this book about women that have inspired us. Would you be in that book? And I was like, what? <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, let me yeah. think that over. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just blown away. And I came back and I told some of my close friends and they were all like, Hillary's a politician. She's not going to own up to that. You know, don't hold your breath. But eventually, you know, draft after draft. And then eventually I got a copy of the signed book and a very nice note from Hillary Clinton saying how much they were happy that I was part of their project. And after I met Hillary, I went home, and I, since my son had voted for her, I said to Quinn, Quinn, do you want me to make an introduction to you, to Hillary? I said, do you want to meet her? And he's like, yeah, I do. I want to meet her. And I said, do you want me to introduce you, try to make an introduction? He said, no. <laughs> and I said, why? And he said, well, I do want to meet her, but... When I meet her, I want it to be because of something that I did, not because of something that you did. And I was blown away that he said that. Oh, I know. That's kind of a natural segue to the last question I have for you, which is if you could transport yourself back to when you were a 21-year-old Alice, and there she is sitting somewhere doing whatever she's doing and you kind of cozy up next to her and lean over and you say, you know, Alice, there's something I really think you need to know about the world, about life. It's one <laughs> lesson I want to share with you. What might be a lesson like that that you would share with your 21-year-old self? You know, you had asked me that earlier and I, I, I was thinking about it and I almost always say, always follow your gut, mm. like follow your intuition. And what I would say to a 21-year-old self would be just find what you love to do and always do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Always try to do the right thing and never give up. That's good advice for a lot of 21-year-olds and maybe 81-year-olds as well. <laughs> Alice Chen, thank you so much for being on the SIDCast and engaging thank in the conversation. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. It's been really fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the SIDCast. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode, and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry production company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.